I'm not good at writing about race because I'm black. I'm good at writing about race because I have studied the hell out of it. Welcome to On Assignment. I'm Abby Wright here with my colleague, Lisa Cohen. Hello, Lisa. Hi, Abby. We're back the day after Election Day with a little bit of a day after hangover. I think it's going to go on for a little more than a day, frankly. One way to tackle it is with the final installment of our Women We Love series. Today, you're going to hear a really thoughtful conversation with Nicole Hannah-Jones, whose work we really admire. Nicole is an award-winning investigative journalist who covers racial injustice for the New York Times Magazine. In June, you may have seen she had an incredible cover story for the magazine about navigating her own young daughter's school experience in Brooklyn called Choosing a School for My Daughter in a Segregated City. Nicole was here at the journalism school as part of our Delacorte lecture series, which brings in leading writers and editors from the magazine world to speak to our students. And she was talking with our own assistant professor, Keith Gesson, who is the new Delacorte professor. She's won many awards, including a Polk Award for a two-part This American Life episode she reported called The Problem We All Live With about school desegregation in Missouri. And she's working on a book on that subject with that same title. We'll be keeping an eye out for that. Nicole has written for ProPublica, The Atlantic, and Essence Magazine, to name just a few of the many news outlets where her work has appeared. So without further ado, here is Nicole Hannah-Jones in conversation with Professor Keith Gesson at Columbia from this September. This is an edited version of the conversation. I'm really excited and honored to have uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones of the New York Times Magazine here as our first Delacorte speaker of the year. Um, Nicole, I thought we would start uh, just by telling us a little bit about how you got started, why you decided to become a journalist, and um, how did you get your first job? Okay. Um, thank you all for coming out tonight. I'm very happy to be here. I come to this campus quite a bit for various events, so I appreciate you all coming out to listen to me talk. Um, so I, how I became a journalist, from a, I grew up in Iowa, and you know, let's get that out there. There are black people in Iowa. We're mostly related to each other. We certainly know all of, you know, almost everyone, but, um, but there were enough of us where we still had a a great deal of segregation. We all lived on one side of town, and um, I started my education in segregated schools. And from an early age, I was just really curious um, about why the black neighborhood that I lived in looked one way, and across the river, white people seemed to be living a very different life. Um, and I never, I was always a skeptical person, um, even as a child, which often got me in, in trouble as a child, but it's proven to be a good life skill. Um, and so I was always very curious. I started reading a lot. I was always very um, enchanted with history because history helped explain the world to me. And um, when I was in probably fifth or sixth grade, I started subscribing to Time Magazine. I think I wrote my first letter to the editor when I was in middle school. Um, and I went to a high school that was about 20% black. And I was taking, our high school offered a one semester black studies course. And I took that class and I was complaining to that teacher who was my only black male teacher that I think I'd ever had, um, that our high school paper never wrote about kids like us. And he told me that if I didn't like it, I should join the paper or be quiet. So uh, I took it as a challenge. I joined the paper. I had a column called From the African Perspective and um, wrote about black kids 
and my classmates and what our experiences were like in that school. I won my first journalism award from the Iowa High School Press Association and was kind of hooked um, after that. Um, how did you get your first job? So my first job was as a, a public schools reporter in the city of Durham, which was a half black, half white, uh, pretty liberal college town. That's where Duke is. And of course, since I went to Carolina, you know I hate Duke. Um, <laughs> Uh, and so I started covering public education in a very segregated, high-poverty school district right at the height of No Child Left Behind, where we were starting to see the rise of high-stakes testing and this belief that if we simply um, test and hold segregated, high-poverty schools to a high level of accountability, that suddenly we would, we would get results um, like, like white schools. And so this is where I started uh, my journalism career. And so very early on was, was kind of looking at the results um, the very devastating results of, of school reform that was leaving kids in segregated high poverty schools. So I started really looking at um, all of the things that reformers were saying would work and then asking, why aren't they working? If, these, if, if this reform, and this was like this, this era of like constant experimentation with, with black schools. You know, we're going to replace all the staff, we're gonna replace the principals, we're gonna divide them into small schools, we're going to turn them into specialized schools, we'll try to do a magnet. Um, every few years these, these kids were being experimented on but the test results were always the same. And that's when I really began to question, um, can you accomplish educational equity within segregated schools? And you just could not find a school that was able to do it. And every educator, um, when they weren't on the record, when they were being honest, would say, what we're being asked to do is impossible when you know, nine of 10 kids are coming in here hungry. Um, they're already behind when they're coming into the classroom. A teacher, I mean, if you can imagine as a teacher, when you have four kids who are behind in a class of 25, that's one thing. But when you have 21 kids who are behind in a class of 25, and you're being asked to do the same thing with those same resources, you're just not gonna get the same results. So the system was really set up to fail, but it was set up to make us feel like, um, you know, politically, it was okay to say we're, we're just gonna hold poor schools accountable because white parents in this very liberal town, just like white parents in almost every town, didn't really want integration or to do the thing that was necessary to make, uh, to give these kids the same education. And so you've said, you've said that at, at, this t at this point you realized that the one thing that would work, integration, is the one thing that um, people refuse to do. Uh, it was a process. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know that I, I came to that. I mean, I was a brand new reporter. Um, but I'm also, I mean, I love research. I read a lot. I read a lot of history. I read a lot of sociology. Like every study that, that comes out in this area, I was reading and, and just really starting to formulate in my mind this picture where if we could do it, someone would have done it. The great story that you've arrived at is the story of resegregation, right? Um, when did you start feeling like that was what you were seeing? Uh, I mean... There's two stories. So I grew up in the North, and it's not really resegregation in the North. It's just continuous segregation. And it was. It really wasn't until I moved down south that I experienced living in inter. Like the South has been the most integrated part of the country in terms of housing and schools for the last 45 years. So um, the story of resegregation is really a Southern story, and the Northern story is a story of 
a willful blindness to the continuing ongoing segregation that has always been here at much higher levels than, than we've seen in the South for the last 50 years. I find, I find annoying um, people who write about race but always write about it as if these inequalities just float down from the sky, as if um, they're all a legacy of the past, and you know the only important you know the work that we that we value is who's the racist of the week, who can we show who said something verifiably racist, um, or we write about studies that say black people are doing badly here, they're living in these conditions, um, which isn't news to anyone. We know that, so I really decided, like, I wanted to understand why. So that's really when my work began to focus on looking at the particular actions that we've taken in the past, but also that, that people are taking right now that maintain uh, segregation and racial inequality. And so with schools, resegregation was, was a way to do that because if a place had been segregated and then it was integrated, you could go back to that point where it starts resegregating and show that someone had to do something and you could find who did what, who made this decision that resegregated this school, um, and then ask them about it. And how did you happen, how did you end up at ProPublica, how did that happen? I was rescued. Um, so Steve Engelberg, who was uh, the founder of ProPublica, was the managing editor at uh, the Oregonian when I was there. And I worked under him there, and so he ended up bringing me on to ProPublica. Really, really right at the point where um, I probably would have left journalism within the next six months at that point. So I always say, I mean, I said this at, at my speech, um, at the National Association of Black Journalists that he saved my life in that way because this is my calling and if he wouldn't have taken me uh, out of that situation and when he brought me to um, ProPublic, I made very clear, if I can't write these stories, don't hire me because I don't want to go to another place where I can't do that and he gave me free reign. Now I'm here. <laughs> um, you've said that you've seen a lot of journalists who were in a similar position who didn't get rescued. Is that right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean... Um, I could go down the list of, of black and brown journalists who have left news because uh, they became very disillusioned with not being able to write the stories that they got into journalism to write. I think newsrooms can be very unfriendly um, to people who don't just look diverse but actually want to tell those stories in a very particular way. Um, one of the things that I heard was like, you, you want to write about black people too much. And I remember having this conversation with the editor at the Oregonian, like, have you ever had that conversation with a white journalist. Have you ever told a white journalist they're writing about white people too much? Um, I mean, you can't even imagine that conversation happening, though it should absolutely happen. And when I was told that, I actually went back through our old um, story system and I printed out every story I'd ever written since I'd been there. And then I put on a stack every story that even had a black person in it, even if I didn't identify the person as black, if I just knew the person was black. And it was 10% of my stories. Um, literally 10%. And I took, those, I took those two stacks into that office and I was like, what is it about you and me that makes you think that me writing 10% of my stories about black people is too much? What was it like to come to a position where you were now allowed to write at length with you know, five or six or seven years of really solid kind of day-to-day -day reporting on it that must have been nice. Yeah, I mean, it was amazing. ProPublica really wants to have impact, so they want you to do a story where like someone's gonna lose their job or you know, some law's gonna get changed. Well, I'm writing about school segregation or housing segregation, fully expecting that when this publishes, nothing will change, ever. Um, 
and I still don't think it really will. And so, but they let me do that, not expecting that I'm going to get some law passed, or you know, there's going to be this like this huge shift in our society because of the work. So to let a reporter spend a year on an investigation that will likely not produce any result except that people may be outraged is pretty amazing thing. Um, but really making, I see myself as like, I'm making a record and um, I'm, I'm hoping forcing us to confront things that we don't wanna confront whether we're gonna fix them or not. Um, I'm always thinking about people trapped in these communities, what they could be if we actually treated them as full citizens. I'm always thinking about the children trapped in these classrooms um, who, as um, as Nidra Martin in my This American Life piece said, like her daughter could be the, the doctor who saves your child's life one day. And we're squandering all of, our, all of these children. Um, that's what I'm always thinking about, even if I don't think my writing is going to change the situation for them. I'm just not gonna let us pretend they're not there. How do you go about choosing um, how to tackle this, these giant subjects? How do you go about choosing? So I'm always at the beginning thinking about what is the narrative? What, what is the narrative device or structure that can drive this story that's probably really hard to read? Um, so. When I did Segregation Now on Tuscaloosa, I mean, one, it was part of the narrowing process about where I would tell that story had to do with the narrative. Um, Tuscaloosa is where George Wallace stands in the schoolhouse door. Um, it's Alabama, which is like the cradle of uh, the Confederacy, but also the, the uh, cradle of the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, real integration didn't come to Tuscaloosa until about 1988, uh, which is actually fairly common. And what the judge ended up doing, there was a black high school and a white high school and a black middle school and a white middle school, and he just merged those schools. And they created really this just blockbuster powerhouse high school. It was like the dream of integration. But the district was also experiencing a lot of white flight, and so as soon as they were released from the court order, they destroyed that integrated high school and created uh, three high schools and um, an entire feeder system of K kindergarten through 12th grade of all black high poverty schools. Um, and before I even went down there, I knew I also wanted to tell it through three generations of one family. I understood that this, so much of this history is gonna take place in the past, and if I wanted people to care about it, I needed to have a human face that would connect them from the past to the present. And luckily, I, I found the perfect family, perfect family, um, pretty early on. I mean, the, the main character in the segregation now story is a young lady named Delisha who is at the all-black high school, and she's just everything. She's class president, she's a state, um, track champion, um, on the mayor's youth council, like everything that we tell kids that they should be if they want to be successful, she was, but she was at a segregated high school that was failing her in terms of her education. Um, but what made the family perfect was I, 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 I wanted a grandparent who had gone through segregated schools after Brown to show how desegregation didn't come to this, didn't come to this country after Brown, and then whose um, parent had gone to the integrated high school in that town as a result of the court order, and now found the grandchild back in segregated schools that looked just like the schools that the grandparents had attended. And that's what I was really looking for, um, and that's what I found in that family. And, and so, but a, a school like Central High School, are there a lot of schools like that that, that were integrated and then became 
you know, unintegrated? Yeah. So the South is experiencing, I mean, a wave of resegregation because um, the only thing that was holding it back were these federal court orders for, for the most part. We never wanted integration in this country, and I think that's a myth we tell ourselves is that we wanted it and we tried really hard and it failed. We failed because we didn't really want it. During the Civil Rights Movement, we were dealing with what's called de jure segregation, which is segregation by law. Um, what we're mostly talking about today is called de facto segregation. But I actually think de facto segregation is a fallacy. De facto segregation is a term that was adopted by the North to resist having to uh, come under um, Brown v. Board. And so de facto means that it's segregation by fact, but we don't really know who caused it. No one's necessarily responsible. We can't say there was a law that forced it or uh, particularly government officials that mandated it. Um, and so that was how most segregation outside of the South, where it was written into the laws, was categorized. Um, but I would argue, and I think my work, which is why I never actually say de facto or de jure, de jure, I just call it segregation, is that most of the segregation we see today is still de jure, in that it is still a result of official policy. It's still the result of official actors. Um, when when the school officials in the city of Tuscaloosa made the decision to draw the tenant zone that creates 13 years of entirely black high poverty schools, I don't know how you call that anything but intentional segregation. Um, and so one of the things that I talk about a lot with journalists is stop getting so caught up in what you can prove someone was thinking. Look at their actions and look at whether or not they knew what the results of those actions would be. Um, but when it comes to race, suddenly like the only thing that matters is whether we can prove what, that someone like hated black people. And my work is saying, like, I don't care. I can show that you made a decision that you knew would be harmful, and you did it anyway. And I want to know why that is. A few months ago, you had a piece in the New York Times Magazine uh, where you described your decision um, to send your daughter to a high-poverty, segregated school. Um, did you do that as a journalist? I made the decision as a mom. I made the decision as a human being who, who actually thinks what we're doing to kids is wrong. Um, and, and understanding that by pretending it's only systemic, it allows us to get off the hook about our individual decisions. Um, but clearly, um, all my years of reporting informed my decision to enroll my daughter in that school. I remember very early on as a, a brand new public schools reporter in Durham, um, hearing all the excuses that, that liberal, parents would give about why they would not put their kids in a school with poor black kids. Um, I remember one of my earlier stories was about um, Durham tried to use magnet schools to integrate certain schools in, in uh, poor neighborhoods. So they did the survey of parents and they're asking, what do you want in your schools? And every single thing that those parents said they wanted existed in these magnet schools in the inner city that couldn't get any white kids. And I just remember, I wrote a story about that. Um, and I just remember how, like, thinking, all these parents, like, they think they're good people, they are good people, they'd say none of their decisions are ever about race, but they're willing to tolerate this inequality. Um, and then throughout the years of my reporting, steadily meeting other journalists who are cataloging racial inequality, but when you ask where they lived or where they sent their own children to school, they weren't living what they were writing. And I just, couldn't fathom doing that. And it's, it's hard to actually say it as a parent that I literally don't think my daughter deserves more than other kids, but I really don't think that she does. And how's school so far? 
She's great. My, my daughter is a sassy little child who's doing great. Um, me being in her school changes the entire dynamic of that school. Them knowing that there's a New York Times reporter who's a parent at that school changes the entire dynamic of that school, right? And we know this, though, because, I mean, this is what I say in my piece. Like, integration is about power. It's about access to power and who has it and who doesn't. And when you have an entire school with every parent lives in a housing project, we know that officials don't care what those parents need. But I, I have my power whether my daughter's in that school or not, but I can share that power if I'm in that school with those kids. Great. Thank you. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about like how do you figure out which is the right person to create that narrative arc within your pieces? Um, in terms of the narrative, this is something that I, that I struggle with a lot actually because I'm always trying to balance two things. I want, I want to pick a kid who is fairly representative, but I'm also always understanding who I'm writing to and that I need to pick a kid that people actually think deserve an education. And I'm very troubled by that. Like, I struggle with that. Because I think, you know, the kid who is a C student, who's come to school with lots of issues, clearly deserves an education, too. Um, but I need to find the kid that someone will really be outraged about. And they're just never outraged about the C black student. They are outraged about Delisha, who is making all A's, who's like doing everything that she could possibly do, and is being screwed. I have a lot of inner turmoil about that and about not being able to write about the typical kid in these schools because I need white people to be outraged so they'll do something. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, hi, my name is Tori and I, like you, really value the sort of historical background that leads to these greater systemic problems and I struggle a lot in my own journalism, how you bring that historical perspective to bear on these problems. Not all of us are going to be able to have the ability to have someone like ProPublica scoop us up and, and give us that opportunity. So how would you recommend that people who are interested in reporting on these types of issues are able to incorporate that, that sort of historical and systemic understanding into the work in a compelling way that may have to be a lot shorter? Um, I mean, the first thing I would say is like, you actually have to know the history yourself if you're going to write about it. And I think a lot of times journalists are not spending the time to figure out what's the history of this place. Um, how many, I, I can't even tell you when I, when I talk how many education reporters, I'm like, have you ever read Brown v. Board of Education? Have you ever read any of the case law around school desegregation? Have you read um, the Civil Rights Act? Have you read the Fair Housing Act? Um, so a lot of times, you're not gonna write about it if you don't know. So to me, the biggest problem is not time and space. It's lack of curiosity um, amongst reporters to really figure out why a place is like it is. So I think that's the, that is the biggest problem, is the lack of curiosity about this history, the lack of, um, of, of, of trying to really go out and get that context and understand that context. And if you have that, you don't need a lot of space to put it in, right? If you're covering a beat, you're writing multiple stories around this issue, and having that context is gonna form what stories you tell and how you tell them and what your subsequent stories are. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Hi. Um, do you think that there's a place for white people to write about race and segregation, even if we might arguably be displacing people of color? Uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, 
the story of race and segregation is not a black story, right? No, of course not. Be quiet, Jelani. <laughs> right? I mean, it's not, right? I mean, I but, think... But when I've listened to the Black Lives Matter people speak a lot, a lot of them have said that this is the time for white people to stand aside and be in, like, the listening place because... But do you think it's more important for us to step aside and allow people of color to communicate their stories? No, I mean, I, I think that uh, journalists of color should be writing about race if they want to. And I think white people should certainly be writing about race. I think the problem is, is white people often think writing about race is writing about like black or brown folks. Um, but white people are living in segregated communities. White people are going to segregated schools. White people are often the ones in power who are um, maintaining the segregation or maintaining the racial inequality. So certainly you guys should be writing about not just race, like going and writing about like how black people are suffering, but writing about you know how power is working and what that power looks like. So um, I don't know how journalists do their job without writing about all kinds of different types of people and all kinds of different types of issues. There's nothing that race doesn't touch in this country. So if you're actually a journalist doing your job, you should be writing about race no matter what color you are and what beat you're covering. Even if we're limited by the range of our experience? We're all limited by the range of our experience. I mean, when I'm working on a story on environmental justice right now, I don't know anything about the EPA. I don't know anything about the laws regulating um, the environment and toxins. I'm having, we're all having, this is the nature of journalism is to have to learn about things that we don't know about and then try to synthesize them for mass consumption. So I think that we need to get out of this mind state that, that race is somehow different. You study it. I'm, I'm not good at writing about race because I'm black. I'm good at writing about race because I have studied the hell out of it, right? I mean, that's what makes me good. And believe me, there's a lot of black writers who I don't think are very good at writing about race. Well, I could name some. No, I'm playing. I'm not going to name them. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. But I think like, I, have, I have developed an expertise in this subject, and that is why I'm good at it. It's not just because inherently when I wake up in the morning, I'm just a great race writer. So I think all of us, if this is something that we want to do, you get an expertise in it, and you'll do, you'll do good work. Thank you. You're welcome. OK, um, that's it. Thank you all for coming, and thank you, Nicole. Thanks to Nicole Hannah-Jones and Keith Gesson. And now let's switch gears. Abby, I wonder what you've been reading or listening to or managing to enjoy over the last week. I have been enjoying a uh, quasi-daily podcast from Slate called Trumpcast, hosted by Jacob Weisberg, the chairman and editor-in-chief of Slate. The gist of it is Jacob speaking with other journalists, historians, psychiatrists, and experts in general to help explain just who is Donald Trump, you know, the phenomena of Trumpism and uh, what it means in the United States today. So that sounds interesting. It has it actually has been very informative. I mean, there were some entertaining parts. He set out to do it up until Election Day, unclear if he'll continue. But irregardless, go back and listen to episodes of Slate's Trumpcast. Okay. How about you? Well, uh, in anticipation of the election, I watched a documentary called Best of Enemies, which is uh, about a series of debates during the 1968 presidential campaign between William F. Buckley, who is the renowned right-wing author, commentator, bon vivant, and author Gore Vidal, also bon vivant, but famous for his liberal social critiques and agenda. 
They were both very erudite intellectuals who basically attacked each other through all 10 debates. It was fascinating. It was kind of like cable network with, you know, crossfire. Big, big words, really, really big words. Um, it was really a lens, like a vehicle to tell the story of the 68 elections. And the archival material is just incredible. The history lesson, it takes us back to this incendiary Democratic convention in Chicago. And, you know, there's this frightening moment that somehow, in, in a way, like looking back, it soothed me to think we made it through that device of time. You know, maybe there's hope. Best of Enemies. I will check it out. Okay. So that's it for the Women We Love series. And in fact, we're now going to take a well-deserved break towards the end of the semester and rejoin you in the spring with another round of interesting guests who visit the journalism school and event coverage and conversations from inside the building. Yes. That's it for this episode. This episode of On Assignment was produced by Hava Gurari, and thanks as always to our funders at the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and of course to Columbia. Our music is by Dylan Nowak, and our sound engineer is Shep Birkin. Special thanks to our DuPont fellows, uh, Meg Dalton, Val Caval, and Kim Flores for taking care of our social media and so much more. You can follow us on Twitter at OnAssignmentPod. Visit us at OnAssignmentPodcast.org or email us at OnAssignmentPodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts.